everybody, and welcome. This is episode 294 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers podcast, part of the MKE Tailgate Network. Uh, we are celebrating Sal Freelick weekend over here. We got the whole gang back, uh, Ryan and Paul, back Yay. in town for this one, just in time <laughs> to talk about our Lord and Savior, Sal. Uh, how's your weekend been so far, guys? So I had the opportunity to go to the game. Actually, as soon as the announcement came, I looked at Amy and I said, are we doing anything tonight? We should go. And she started looking at tickets and was like, okay, yeah, we, we can definitely do this. It's, it's cool. We could do it. And uh, then I just decided not to do it. Just like randomly. It was just like, eh, eh whatever. Why? It's not that big you a deal. You of all people That's didn't weird. want to go see the prospect debut? No I kidding. did. My first instinct was go, go see it. And then I'm like, because eh, eh, eh. it looked like it was going to be rainy, and it was, and it also looked like the roof was going to be closed, and it was going to be muggy, and I was just like, no, we go to a lot of games, it's fine. And let's be honest, with my track record here, there's no way he would have done what he had done if I was in the building. I would have Fair. caused the stars to realign, and he wouldn't have done that. He would have you know, been 0 for 3 with two strikeouts or something. Like It, it would have been terrible. So... You're welcome, everybody. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. I'm just glad to not be traveling for a weekend. So um, no I we, we didn't, took it easy and didn't do too much. Um, we, we had, uh, just for people who didn't know, we had vacation bookended by funerals. So um, that's why I wasn't on the podcast. And um, I'm just glad to, to not be anywhere except for here. Um, one thing I will say is, the, the the last funeral, my Aunt Carol, RIP, nice lady, um, was in Minocqua, Wisconsin, um, during Camp Week, which is apparently there's a bunch of camps up by that area in Eagle River, mm-hmm. where people drop their kids off all summer and don't talk about them. Which to those people, I say uh, kudos for thinking of that. Um, <laughs> and um, we got like the last hotel room in Minocqua. And it was at a water park hotel, the Waters of Minocqua. Water park might be stretching it a little bit, but since it was the last hotel room. Uh, it was a uh, one bedroom with a giant king bed and a huge hot tub in the bedroom. And uh, the kids wanted to play in the hot tub. And uh, we said, no, 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 nobody goes in there. That's not a good idea. Go to the water park. Um, and the other thing is there's a brewery in Manaqua called the Manaqua Brewing Company. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are an ultra liberal brewing brewery. All of their beers have leftist p- politicians on the, the cover. Like I have a Bernie Sanders lager here. And if you don't care for that, that's fine. Uh, but you should know that the town has actually targeted them with uh, with overbearing zoning laws and things mm-hmm. like that to try and drive them out of business, which is absolutely unconstitutional. So um, even if you don't, even if you prefer your politics a bit right, if you are a First Amendment defender, you should still support them. Um, you know, after they're not being targeted by the government, if you want to not drink their stuff, totally fine. Understand that. But uh, you should actually try and make the government pay for that. So, yeah, that's all. Yeah, the Monaco Brewing Company, we have stopped there many, many times. We have friends that live in Washburn. And so it's right on the route right up there. Uh, my wife actually used to go to camp every year up in that Manaqua area up there. <laughs> so she was one of those kids. Um, actually, it was more like family vacation, but they had a cabin that they would go to up there. But, All right. But yeah, so uh, so she did that. But yeah, so every time we drive through that area, we always stop in the Manaqua Brewing Company. It's a good spot. I've watched several Packer games in the Manaqua nice. Brewing Company. Okay. And that was like before all that started, because this was a the more that the community pushed or some people, not the community in general, but the more the certain people in the community pushed on them, the more they started to play it up and make a thing out of it. They did. Um, 
and they, it, so they clearly it, harnessed it, which good for yes, them. Yes, exactly. So it was, uh, it, yeah. I, I actually, I think I follow them on Twitter. I, I'm pretty sure. So yeah, they uh, they are entertaining to say the least. You mean you follow them on X? On X. Oh, good God Almighty! What fresh hell is this? We can talk about that later. <laughs> All right, uh, we have. A lot, a lot, a lot of questions, uh, largely sp- spurred on by the the historic baby debut of South Relix. So uh, let's just dive right in. But first, a reminder, you can become a patron. Get question priority came in handy this week at patreon.com slash MKE tailgate. Two bucks a month gets you your questions answered both on this podcast and on reporting as eligible as training camp apparently yeah, starts we'll, soon. We'll, there'll be football podcasts pretty soon here. Just got to get things geared up here but yeah training camp starts next wednesday which is in like uh three days so yeah there'll be football soon that blows my mind that it's already training camp where did the summer go yeah all right uh five bucks a month gets you the question priority plus additional exclusive content the minor league extra with ryan and james anderson from rotowire as well as paul's mini pods uh as uh the season continues here and we will be doing our uh, draft wrap episode. I think we're recording on Thursday, if I remember right. I think I have the the time set for one o'clock on Thursday. So uh, I will be posting for questions a day or two before that. But we're really going to spend a lot of time just recapping the draft and talking about kind of how these guys fit into the system at this point. So, yeah. So look forward to that this week for those of you who are patrons. Absolutely worth listening to. All right. Uh, so speaking of prospects, uh, Sal is is pretty much all we're going to be talking about in the front half of this episode. The uh, quality of competition for the Brewers improved a bit this week. They took two out of three in Philly, though, uh, which was really nice to see there. They returned home, dropped two out of three to the Braves, which uh, no shame in doing that to what might be the best team in baseball. And they were competitive all the way through. And uh, then they had that that magical game on Saturday night in front of a national audience, the legend of self really was born. So uh, obviously uh, you already know how that went. Perfect night at the plate, made a couple of incredible grabs in the outfield. So uh, just a lot of interest in him now. And, and this kind of energy that even on Sunday, you know, every time he stepped up to the plate now, he's sort of like a cult hero in like two (laughs) games. So uh, it, it's fun how you know you can come out of the gates like that as a prospect and, and suddenly have everybody behind you. But let's just dive into the questions because, as I mentioned, we've got a ton. And uh, let's just start with Corey Diedrich's uh, question here asking, is Freelux debut the best in Brewers history? The only thing he didn't do is walk on Lake Michigan as he left the stadium. <laughs> so this, of course, uh, caused the guys to kind of do some quick research and googling and find some some names of brewers past to try to see if we could match that kind of effort so i i guess brian let's start with you who are some of the names uh some of the debuts that come to mind yeah so for me i immediately thought of a couple pitchers that uh that popped right into mind and the first one is clearly it's freddie peralta because uh, not only did he make his debut on Mother's Day, and I think his mom was there for the first time to see him pitch as a professional. She had made her way up. So the family mm-hmm. was there to watch him pitch. And he's at Coors Field, so you're expecting fireworks and it's going to be bad. And uh, he was young and pretty untested. And this was kind of an emergency start situation. And he ends up going five and two thirds shutout, striking out 13. Uh, I mean, he got 17 outs and 13 of them were strikeouts. And it was sort of a... 
knock your socks off uh, introduction where you went, oh, this kid is maybe going to be really, really good. Like this, this has the potential to be really, really good for them. Um, at a point when it wasn't even necessarily clear in terms of prospect status, he was ascendant and everybody was kind of paying attention to him. If you followed prospects, you knew who he was. But uh, that was that was sort of an eye opening thing and the first thing that popped to mind. And then the other one that I thought of right away was Chris Signs. And I'm fairly certain I was in the ballpark for that one. Um, but this is this is a legendary thing. JR has written about this on the JS, and you can go look this up. Um, he in 2004 made his only big league appearance and then he got injured afterwards, but he, uh, he pitched against, oh, hold on. I have it. He pitched against the Cardinals. I believe it was. And, um, threw six shutouts, seven strikeouts back when seven strikeouts was a pretty big deal. And, uh, then got hurt and never pitched, uh, in the big leagues ever again. So those were the two that instantly popped right into my mind. Um, but I didn't really find any hitters. It's it's harder to do with hitters. We tried looking some of those things up, and we'll get to that in yeah. a minute. But, Paul, you have some stuff. Yeah, so hitters are tough. A lot of people struggled. I, I think the other good one is Steve Woodard, um, who pitched uh, his debut. was the first game of a doubleheader against the Toronto Blue Jays um, in 1997 and threw eight innings of one-hit shutout baseball. So um, it honestly doesn't get much better than that. Um, I'm actually frantically trying to scramble and find the hit real quick. Um, but Steve Woodward was a, a pretty good prospect and actually had a mm-hmm. decent career for the team um, and didn't really live up to like this. Um, it, um, it, but, uh, you know, he was a, a good, solid player for the team for a long time. And his debut was absolutely outstanding. Like, first of all, um, the opposing pitcher against so Steve Woodard, eight innings pitched, one hit, 12 strikeouts, one walk. Um, does mm-hmm. not get much better than that in 119 pitches. Uh, defeated Roger Clemens one nothing in his debut. Um, mm-hmm. Mike Fetters got the save. That's a pretty good debut, uh, honestly. That, that's probably the one of the few that does rival what we just saw. Um, and also, um, in a kind of an unusual little bit there, uh, I think it helped them win game two, which was a bit of a blow. They went nine to three, but they had everybody available for game two in that game. I guess Clemens went the full game too. So he did too, but uh, you know, um, it, it's nice to save your bullpen for the second game of the doubleheader. Uh, um, the, the Brewers would actually sweep that four game series against the blue Jays. So um, he got them off to a good start. They did really, really well. And uh, what was, you know, fine, good, not this good, but good. Yeah. You remember who they traded him for, right? I do not at all. That was Richie Sexton. That's how they got Richie Sexton. Oh, okay. And that was because Cleveland had such a terrible time. That Remember, they could develop hitting like it, it just constantly. They had kidders coming out of their ears. Um, Brian Giles was also developed in that time period, and he got traded. But Sexton was developed, and uh, they traded him for the best young pitcher they could find that was sort of available there. And if I'm not mistaken, Steve Woodard shows up in the Mitchell report, right? Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh, Woodard, yeah, Steve Woodard shows up in the in the Mitchell report. So Well, that's a good way to beat Roger Clemens, honestly. Even playing field, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. It was that was the uh the height of it right there. I mean, it it doesn't get much more <laughs> steroid era than like summer of nineteen ninety seven. So uh that's that's kind of that in ninety seven, ninety eight. That's sort of the pinnacle of it. So yeah. Uh but moving on to so like hitters, the one we started checking like the big names to see yeah. what they had done, and we didn't find a good debut, 
But Paul Molitor in his second game uh, drove in five runs against the Orioles. Uh, that would have been April 8th, 1978. So in his second game, he drove in five runs, had three hits. Actually, his second and third game, uh, he had three hits apiece in each of those games, including his first big league homer that he had in the second game. So he kind of came out of the gates hot there, which you'd expect he was a college guy, a well-developed hitter. Like For him to hit the ground running is not a, a surprise in any way, shape, or yeah, form. Not at all. Yeah, it, it's tough to look up at those hitters, too. Like, we were frantically checking baseball yeah. reference, trying to find a good way to search that. Yeah, the only other one I could find that was, it wasn't necessarily good, but it was interesting. It was Pat Listash's first game. He did not actually record an at-bats, but he pinch ran and stole oh. a base, which is a very Pat Listash way to start off his career. Now, was that in 92 or was it in 91? Did he get called up in September of 91? It was in 92. It was, it was uh, he actually April 8th of 1992 in a 9-5 win over the Twins. Interesting. One stolen base ended up sco- he so he scored, but then somebody after he scored hit a home run. So the stolen base it was it was a very like sabermetric. This is why you don't steal kind of thing, <laughs> where um, he got he pinch ran. Um, there was an he stole second, then somebody behind him reached on an error and he didn't advance, and then he scored on a single, and then somebody hit a home run, just making the whole rest of what happened moot. So good yeah, time. that checks out. Yeah, uh, Jay Google's asking what's a more memorable MLB debut for the Brewers. I mean, for me, it's Freddie Ryan. You, yeah. you mentioned Freddie. Uh, at least, I don't know. That might just be recency bias. I'm a little too young to remember Steve Woodard. So for me, that's probably it. I don't know if you guys have any other. Yeah, I think we pretty much exhausted the list. There was, yeah. there was essentially the same question. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, Spencer Michaelis asking, who had the better debut, Sal Freelick in the majors or Spencer Michaelis on the podcast? I'll hang up and listen. <laughs> uh, Spencer did did a very, very nice job uh, stepping in for Paul the other week. Uh, yes, he did. Appreciate yes, he Spencer did. coming in. Uh, he told us he had never really podcasted before, if you guys can believe that or not. So um, obviously, yeah. you know, like I, I was kind of floored debut. by that. Like I yeah. was floored when he said that. I'm like, you're kidding, right? So, no, that was uh, that was pretty good. And yes, Spencer will be back on when Paul has to be out or James has to miss or I have to. Spencer yep. is, is on the list of replacements uh, to come in and, and sit in. So yep. you will be hearing great. Spencer's he's, voice again. I think he's kind of a natural. So he did great. Well yeah. done. Absolutely. Thanks again, Spencer. Uh, Jeremy Nachman asking, do you currently project Freilich to eventually overtake Bando as the most productive Sal in franchise history? (laughs) I love this this question. And, you know, like this this sort of came up. I don't know if you guys remember a couple of years ago. I think it was during COVID times when we did like our all time Brewers roster. Sal Bando really underrated. So I I guess, Paul, how far does... Sal Freelich have to go to kind of reach that level. It's going to be hard to catch Sal Bando, who's actually a really, really good player. <laughs> yeah. He's got to go a long way. And, you know, we shouldn't overrate debuts. Like, for instance, Steve Woodard isn't one of the greatest pitchers in franchise history. Um, so, long way to go, but, you know, it's better to start with a game like this than with a terrible game where you go for five and strike out four times. So, um, it, it's a, it's at least a good start. But, yeah, Sal Bando is awesome. So, uh, not not at general managing, but at playing, he was awesome. Yeah, and if we want to just sort of like set the the bar here, uh, Sal Bando obviously doing this at the end of his career as opposed to Freilich will be doing this at the start of his career, uh, put up 9.4 uh, baseball reference war. So yep. that's attainable. Like he can get to that. He doesn't even need to be like particularly good if he if he plays out his, you know, six plus years of control here because as it stands right now, somebody actually asked me this 
on Twitter, so I might as well go into it. Um, as it stands right now, he was called up late enough that there's no way he would even be a Super 2 in 2026. So he's going to be uh, just a, a, a regular um, league minimum player for 24, 25, 26, and then arbitration eligible 27, 28, 29, and eligible for free agency after that. So, okay. I, um, okay. I, I'm sorry to break in, but I've been frantically searching for other good offensive debuts. Oh. Um, and I don't have a good one, but I've got a, a super interesting one. Okay. Yeah, so Rock's debut. Bill Schroeder's debut. Um, he went one for five, which isn't good. But his first major league hit was a triple. And it was the only triple nice. of his yeah. entire career. <laughs> I yeah. think they might have brought that up on Sunday. Uh, I, I tuned in just really quick, and they were kind of giving him crap for it. So, That's insane. Yeah, yeah, the only triple of his career in his MLB debut. That's a great one. Yeah. That's a great, great pull. Yeah, he yeah, that one does come up frequently when they when they discuss his things that his major league debut included his only career triple. So that's yeah, one of the the oddities of uh, Rock's history. Did you know that he caught the only well, I guess it's not the second no uh yeah, the second, second no hitter in franchises. He'll should be the third. always have caught the first. Yeah, he'll, he'll always, always have, have caught the first. the first, yes. Um but anyway, yeah, so Freilich, uh is under team control through the end of the 2029 season at this point. He could theoretically, if he like struggled enough that they would send him down, he could move back to 2030. But that would take like three months of being in the minors at this point. And that's it seems fairly unlikely that that would happen. But you never know how this stuff's going to work. But I mean, to average, he would need to average like less than two war per season over six years to get to Bando. So I'd say he has a really legitimate shot at this. Yeah, it'll be something to keep an eye on as well. The, the race of the cells. I love it. Uh, I just love anybody named Cell. Really kind of takes me back to my college days out in New York. So <laughs> I, I, I have a fondness for Sal's and, and his family, by the way, it, uh, in the stadium. Uh, God bless them. Look like the most Boston family in the world. So uh, very, very fun. They fun really, yeah. really did. Boy, were they on right. TV a lot? Good for them. Yeah, yeah, they always are. All right, uh, PJ Wessels, next freelick question, saying he's coming up. Where does he slot in defensively? Where in the lineup should he be? Where do you want him to hit? Is the corresponding move the right one? Raimel Tapia was DFA'd, of course. So, uh, Ryan, let's just start with you. Seems like, obviously, right field the first couple of days. Uh, so is that kind of where you expect him to kind of stay for now? So I tweeted about this right away, and JR actually responded to me and said he didn't think it was likely that they were going to move Weimer out of center field. Yeah, this I saw was that. Before they, before they actually announced their lineup for today or yesterday, for, for Saturday or Sunday. And it turns out they did the thing nobody was expecting them to do, which was to play Sal Frelick in right field. Joey Weimer hit the bench for what... Uh, Somebody just told me a little while ago on Twitter was baseball reasons. Don't know exactly what that means, but Joey Weimer uh, was riding the pine this weekend. And you ended up with uh, Blake Perkins in center field, which really, really came as a surprise to me that they would choose to move Perkins over to center field. Not that he's not a good center fielder. He obviously is. But Freilich has played a lot more center field coming up 
than he ever played in right field, and he definitely does not have the prototypical arm for right field. Depending on who you ask, it's a 40 or a 45 arm. So it's below average, and you like to have guys to be at least 55, if not 60, in right field, which is what Joey Weimer has, which is why I thought it kind of made sense. I think Weimer's the long-term right fielder for this team anyway. So I thought, yeah, maybe you would see Sal move over to center field. He clearly has the wheels for center field, but they decided to put him in right field, and that was pretty weird. Um, so I, I don't know about that. Uh, where we're going to see that. But that is going to be interesting to see going forward because it's only going to get more complicated with Jackson Churio down the line. So who knows exactly where all these guys are going to end up settling in. You've got, you know, Yelich still in left. You'll Garrett Mitchell's coming back next year. Where is he going to play? There's there's just a lot of guys who can play a lot of different outfield positions at this point. And I think that falls into the category of good problem to have, right? It does. It does. And it's nice that everybody can slot into different positions, even if maybe for Alex, not ideal for that one. But, um, you know, I think they do just view it's the Brewers. They love versatility and they're not afraid to play, play people in wherever they can play. So um, we it was surprising mostly because I think, you know, Blake Brookins is kind of an afterthought for all of us. And um, he shouldn't be taking spots from anybody, but he is a judge actually tweeted the other day. Mm-hmm. I think he's like saved like the fifth most runs in baseball this year defensively or some crazy thing like that. Yeah. So he's a defensive stud too. They got a lot of them, um, but it's still weird to have him there. He should probably be in center with that arm, honestly. It's a, uh, but whatever, it's not a huge deal. The arm doesn't come in handy that much over the course of a season from right field. It's, it's just nice. Yeah, and it's not like you want somebody with a complete rag arm in center either because center fielders do have to make yeah. some pretty consequential throws, especially when they're deep into the the corners there. Uh, so you like to have a center fielder with at least, you know, a playable like average-ish arm, like a 50 arm. But right field is where it, you know, obviously to, to catch the runners trying to go first to third. Like that's really what you want the, the right yep. fielder to be able to do. Um uh. As far as Tapia being the one who is DFA'd, 100% good with that decision. That's exactly who I would have DFA'd in that situation. Uh, Tapia really isn't adding anything they don't already get at like basically every other spot, and he's much more limited than basically everybody else on the roster in most ways. So he was yep. just like a, a, a get-you-through sort of guy for the time being, and that's fine. But yeah, he, he was, I think, clearly the guy who should have gone in this case yep agreed okay i'm gonna devin aroma should do the crap out of this podcast but i did yeah. manage to get stat stat head to give me um some debut stats Ooh. so um the the correct other answer um outside of Freilich, there's a few of them but we should have mentioned jeff jenkins did we mention jeff jenkins i don't think we did because he hit a home run <laughs> he had two hits and okay. a home run okay so, um, nobody else who had two hits or more hit a home run in their debut He's the huh. only one. So uh, the other three hit guys are Steve Bowling, who I've never heard of, who played in 1976, and mm. Sixto Lascano, who we probably also should have mentioned, oh, who, yeah. who, was, who had three hits in his debut as well. So the other two hit guys, so there's Jenkins, who also went yard, giving him a, a big leg up on everybody. Um, Keston Hira, actually one of them, uh, had two hits in his debut, both singles. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin Barker, who, again, I've never heard of, had two singles in his debut, um, Dale Swaim, who uh, we probably should have mentioned, had a single and a double, pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Doug Loman, single and a double. And then Jim Gatner had two hits too. So that's that's it. That's everybody who had two hits or more in the, their debut. 
and Jenkins is the only one to go yard. All right. It's a really good list. Really yeah. good. Like yeah. it is a good list. Yeah, it's an interesting list. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jenkins is right before I would have been watching like on a consistent basis. Because what was that? Ninety seven. Did he make uh, his it debut? Was ninety eight? Was ninety eight? Okay. Ninety eight. Yeah, and I don't even know. At ninety eight, were they showing? I don't think the Brewers TV network at that point was showing even like half the games. I think it was still in the time period when they were showing like sixty games a year. So like, there's a good chance that game wasn't even like on TV. In back in that era, it it came along a little bit later. Like by the time I was deep into college, you could watch most games. They still had yeah. those weird Sunday blackouts where you couldn't watch like Sunday home games. They they just like wouldn't do it. unless you wanted to switch over to Telemundo, which I often did. <laughs> All right, uh, I guess last part of PJ's question here: Where do you want to see him hit in the lineup? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. obviously we saw him sixth on his debut cleanup on Sunday. Um, I think some people would think he's the prototypical leadoff guy, right? But Yelly's been doing so well there. And then there's the matter of trying to split up lefties. So I know we're not crazy about lineup construction, but it's kind of uh, interesting, Paul, I guess. I, you- I think he's kind of a prototypical three hitter, honestly, um, because the, like the three is like the fifth most valuable hitter. And he's really a guy you just don't want to like ground. Like that's a guy who is good to have contact on. Hmm. Um, who can put the ball into play and not necessarily ground into a ton of double plays. Um, that's a good spot for that. And I, like I know people think of the three spot as having a ton of power, but that's not really. I mean, it's fine if your three guy hits a ton of home runs. That's fine. That's where Braun preferred to hit. Um, but I think he actually slots in really well there. Um, as you know, if there's guys on base and there's there's two outs and you hit the ball on the ground. That's okay. That's not a big deal. And if you you know punch it through, that's that's much better. So um, uh, that's where I'd put him. I think he slots in really well as a three hitter. Yeah, I think uh, first, third, uh, any of those second, any of it really works. Like in another era, a lot of people would want to put him in the two hole and have him out there bunting for yeah you know, and doing stuff like that. Like in another you know time period, that would have been more common. But that's not how the game is played anymore. So. Uh, that would be kind of out. But I think the big thing is just like Yelich does have big platoon splits this year, um, like traditional platoon splits, Paul, <laughs> not reverse. Uh, it was his uh, his uh, um, OPS against righties was nine something and his OPS against lefties was six something. I don't remember the yep. exact numbers, but um, He's back to normal. It's a good sign. It's one right. Of those good- <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. And but I think it also then uh, would say you don't want Freilich next to him. I, I think agree. You, I agree. you do want to split your lefties in this case. I think I think that is helpful. And I don't think you want Rowdy next to him either. So like when you get back to the point of of having Rowdy back, which apparently a couple weeks is what they're looking at on that one middle of August sometime, um, you maybe go something like. Yeah, Freilich or Yelich leading off. If you don't want to mess with Yelich and change his mindset or do anything to upset that apple cart, yeah, just go ahead and leave him at first. Put Freilich in third. And you're right. It is an interesting profile because three is a weird spot in the lineup. Uh, people traditionally think that's where the best hitter should go, but that's really the second spot. That's wrong. That's the second yeah. spot, yeah. It's the second spot where your best hitter should go. The three spot, and the reason for that, I don't know if you said it explicitly, Paul, it's because the three spot comes up with two outs and nobody on more than any other position in the lineup. And that is the worst position for a batter to come up in. So it's the least valuable position they can come up in is with two outs and nobody on. Um, So uh, that's 
that that would be fine to have him there wherever is fine at this point there's so few guys who are hitting and putting up like traditionally good stat slash lines i mean for god's sake they, they had jesse winker hitting in the four spot and the only reason he's even on the team anymore is he takes a bunch of walks so like there's a lot of different ways this can go and it's fine kind of whatever but the one caveat i would say is i would like to see him well especially if he's getting on base i want him towards the top of the lineup and I would also like to see him not sitting next to Christian Yelich. Yeah. That's it. More than anything, it, just, it would be nice to have a, a good bat. It doesn't really matter where he is. <laughs> yes. We're, we're at that point where it's just like, give me somebody yeah. who hits the damn ball. It's like, oh, oh, oh we, have, we have a good bat. Oh, no. Where will we put him in the lineup? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. All right, uh, Luke Roy's suitcase asking who loses in playing time with the Freelick call up. Uh, obviously, you guys mentioned Joey Weimer hasn't played since Freelick mm-hmm. got called up. Um, that might be one, but Paul, I guess, how do you see the playing time shaking out? Um, I, I mean, I would think Perkins would take a take it on the chin a little bit there too, and you know, someone was DFA'd for him too. So, but uh, think, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I would think Perkins because your ideal starting lineup would surely include. Yelich, Weimer, and Freilich, and then Perkins has less time, uh, so him. But maybe, I don't know, well, the Weimer thing is worth watching. Who knows what it is, but uh, it's that's the obvious answer. Your fourth outfielder who played, you know, kind of a lot, will probably play less if there's an actual weapon ahead of him versus just a bunch of mix-and-match nonsense. Yeah, I think that it's not going to be a platoon situation here, but I think you're going to see... Uh, Weimer losing playing time against righties as the the season wears on here just because he's been bad against righties but has he has pretty well and I think that you can say the same it probably is going to work out largely the same for Tyron Taylor too like he's going to see less time I forgot he was on the team (laughs) yeah the Taylor thing is just checking really quick to make sure he was still on the roster yes same (laughs) Uh, Taylor's there and it's it's a tough situation because he had OPS pluses over 100 the last two years and he's has less than 100 plate appearances this year and he's been utterly terrible this year but also like hurt and so do you want to it's it's how much time do you want to give him do you want to move on from him cut him let him go someplace else because he is still a very good defender and he can hit lefties and i know that the the i don't know if you caught that in last week's pod paul but the lefty righty thing has just about yeah. evened out at this point it's, it's pretty much gone yeah That's, yeah it's pretty I, much I did, gone. yes it has so that that is nice that 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 has happened but it is still a concern i mean they need people to hit period whatever and i feel like uh Having Weimer, and I, I'm not advocating for a strict platoon here, but having Weimer and Taylor out there against left-handed batters, or sorry, against left-handed pitchers, and having Freilich and um, Perkins. Perkins out there against right-handed pitchers is going to be something we're going to see quite a bit of here. Like, that that seems to be sort of the way this is headed. Um and all are competent defenders, competent to good defenders, like actually yeah. better than competent in most cases. Um, they're good defenders, pretty much. So uh, the one thing about that, I will say, Sal Freilich today, I don't know if you guys caught when he had the <laughs> defensive. I know exactly what you're talking about. 
Yeah, I yeah. mean, and Rice the, Trang almost killed him. Yeah. Oh no, no, no! I actually was well, talking no, about that. You're talking oh, about the, no? the, the up against the wall divey oh, type yeah. catch that he did not bring that, in. That he did uh, not bring in. Well, it was a ball that was sliced. I believe it was a yeah. right-handed batter who sliced one, and it was just one of those that kept traveling, traveling, traveling. And I'm watching it going. Weimer would make this catch, he but would. then Weimer has seen that angle on that baseball many, many, many more times than Self Frelick has. Because Fralick, frankly, guys, has not played much right field. He just yeah. most of the time. Um, in fact, he was playing in college. He was playing a lot of second base. He was playing on the infield quite a bit, too. So being an outfielder is still somewhat new to Fralick. So he, he runs like Scooter Jeanette, by the way. <laughs> he, he looks like he's trying to injure the ground. Um, <laughs> but uh, he is quite a bit faster. I, I When we see oh, yeah, sprint speeds, uh, yeah, I don't I think, think yeah, Scooter yeah. was fine, like in terms of speed. Uh, uh, but Freelick's fast. He's just he's Freelick doing the Tom Cruise fast. Mission Impossible run. Like he is, <laughs> he wants you to know that he's running. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, his, his running, Paul, you see his high school football highlight reel. Yes, yes. Play was, mo- oh my god! Play multiple the turbo button. He was yeah. he was very very good as a football player. Like um, just outstanding. Gatorade Player of the Year. Yeah, but that's not even the most interesting thing because he was actually also. Wasn't he the hockey player of the year too? I don't. I don't know. Nobody. Nobody put hi- hockey highlights in my thing. So. Oh, know. you did. Okay. <laughs> no, he was. He was an exceptional hockey player as well. He was the classic Boston. That's the uh, the Boston version of the three sports star. Yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah. He's playing baseball in the spring, football in the fall, and hockey in the winter. <laughs> yeah. Of course. All right. Uh, one last Freelick question here. Adam Post asking. Following Freelick, what Brewers prospect, top 10 or so, are we most likely to see in the majors this season? So, Ryan, who's following him, him in the pipeline? So I talked about this yesterday, and actually it's I've had three tweets blow up this week in ways that I, like, getting 100 likes on a tweet, like, never happens for me. And I've had three that have gone over, like, 300 this week. Um, one of them was this one about Jackson Churio. Um, for those who are unaware, Jackson Churio is currently hitting uh, the technical term is the holy living shit out of the baseball in yeah. in high A at the moment. And um, double A. Did I say high A? You yeah. said high A. Did, yeah, sorry. Yeah, in in uh, in double A at the moment. Um, depending on, I don't know what exactly he did today. Pulling it up real quick, uh, he is now in the month of July, the numbers I have, he's hitting 403, 431, 694. Did you in, see Noel Baldwin's tweet about Jackson earlier today? Uh, this talking about the sticky stuff? About No, about the his WRC+. plus. Oh, no, I missed that. Well, you know, you know what? I take it back. It's Kurt's tweet. Sorry. It's Kurt's tweet. Noel was quote-tweeting it, and it didn't oh, show okay. up. So, uh, Kurt's tweet. Um, Kurt Hogue, of course, friend of the podcast. Um Jackson Churio's 107 WRC Plus is the fifth highest for a teenager at AA since 2006. Mm. Names ahead of him, Mike Trout, Fernando Tatis Jr., Jerickson Profar, Manny Machado. His 461 <laughs> slugging percentage is third best behind only Trout and Tatis. So, um, he's he's fine. <laughs> and more there. than fine. <laughs> so, the reason I brought it up was to point out that if he continues to do this, and I don't think he even needs to get called to AAA. Guys, AAA is not, it's a holding pen for the majors at this point. It's not even really a developmental league unless you've just got to send like guys there to wait for their chance. And that's not going to be Jackson Churio. Jackson Churio is going to tell you when he's ready. And he's 
getting pretty damn close getting to telling close. Yep. to telling that he's ready. And there's a consideration here that because I brought this up to a friend who thought it was crazy. And I'm like, well, OK, you have to understand that the path here is the Corbin Carroll, um, Julio Rodriguez, uh, maybe Gunnar Henderson. Is, is Gunnar Henderson going to win the rookie of the year in the uh, American League? I think he, he's got a shot. He definitely I, heated up. Yeah, I actually haven't checked other rookies. I think so, but, but I'm not sure. Corbin Carroll's going to win and he's going to get this. If you are a top 100 prospect, and obviously Trio is. And you are on the major league roster with rookie eligibility to start the season. If you open the year on the the uh, big league roster and you win the rookie of the year award or down the road, if you get certain placements in the, the MVP, there's other ways for this too. your team gets a draft pick. Um, Julio Rodriguez just got the Mariners the 29th pick in this year's draft. So the Mariners got an extra first round draft pick simply by having Julio Rodriguez win Rookie of the Year for them and them having them on the roster all year. So right. if Churio is in the position to do this, you absolutely have to do it. And the way that teams have sort of started to view this is you call these guys up the last week of August and let them get their feet wet. That's what they did. The uh, Diamondbacks did with Corbin Carroll. It's what the Orioles did with Gunnar Henderson last year. I think there were some other guys too, but those were the ones that really jumped right to mind. Uh, if you have a guy who's close and you think he has a shot at doing this, it's almost malpractice not to take that shot. And taking that shot involves calling him him up like the last week in August, first week in September, somewhere in there, and letting him figure out like, hey, let him see some big league reps. Um, for those that aren't aware, like Mike Trout was not good in his first, was it 150 plate appearance or so? It was less than that because he was still rookie eligible. But when he came up in 2011, he wasn't all that good. He actually struggled quite a bit in his first 100 plate appearances. Comes back the next year and becomes Mike Trout pretty much right away. Yeah. So you want to give the guy a little bit of a chance to do this. And if you have a chance to potentially get a first round draft pick out of Jackson Churio, um, you are insane not to take that chance. If you're going to have him come up pretty quick next year anyway, service time manipulation no longer makes sense um, for guys like Jackson Churio. There is too much. This is something that they got very right in the last CBA. Both sides negotiated the right thing here. It no longer makes sense for you to keep a top prospect and try to weasel an extra year of service time out of them in by keeping them down until you know mid to late April. That no longer makes sense because if you have a guy that's that good, they have a legitimate chance of winning the Rookie of the Year or winning some other award quick down the, the line. And getting you an extra draft pick. And that the value of that is so much higher than what you could potentially get from um, the service time manipulation that it just it makes no sense to to play those games anymore. It's just wild that we're in this spot now because, Ryan, I'm sh I think I remember us getting this question earlier in the year. Like, when can we expect Jackson Churio? And we're mm -hmm. like, eh, maybe end of next year. And that seemed a little aggressive. But man. He's like still just kept hitting every every step of the way, you know, like he, he's figured it out and it's sort of the pattern he's followed. Well, it, guys set their own timelines when they're this good. And yep. he has just ever since the uh, the sticky stuff, the pre-tacked balls went away in high and keep saying it in double A this year in the Southern <laughs> League. Ever since those pre-tacked balls went away, um, basically nobody's getting Jackson Trio out anymore. 
He's had <laughs> he's had so many three hit games. It's like every night I, I get a text from a friend. Churio had another three hits tonight, and I'm like, oh, let me go look. And yep, sure enough, there we go. So yep. yeah, um, he's yeah. special. He is absolutely special, and mm-hmm. so special circumstances are going to reign here. They're they're going to do some stuff with him that's going to make you go, oh wow, that's really aggressive, and <laughs> they they should. All right, let's move on to other Patreon questions, non-self-like <laughs> division here. Uh, Price Trozen is asking, uh, Colin Ray and Julio Tehran's Smoke and Mirrors Act continues to be working. What roles do these two have uh, to the team once Woodruff and Miley get healthy? Will long relief be a possibility as we get deep into the season to preserve starter and pen arms for a playoff push? So... Uh, you know, I thought the the Tehran pumpkin was starting to develop here, and then he goes and uh, shuts down his former team on Sunday, Paul. So yeah. I guess uh, once the Brewers start to get those big names back, where do they slide in? As long as you have spots, I think you you, you keep them around as just inning soakers for those times that happen, and um, they'll probably have spots for at least one of them for a while. Um, and they've been useful. Like, and who knows if Wade Miley's ever coming back? Also, there's there's that lingering. Uh, I think the thing is, you don't want to really fall in love with them. I think uh, accidentally in the playoffs. At that point, um, th- th- your stuff's going to get lit up by actual good teams if that actually happens. But they're they're useful. Like they they play to the Brewers' strengths of defense behind the pitchers. The Brewers just have elite out uh, out creation in in that defense. And those guys are the guys who put the ball or get the ball in play without being home runs most of the time. So um, if you can make room for them, they, they are useful. The Brewers frequently run into situations where they need a guy to take one or to go out there and give you six innings of non-terrible ball. Um, but as the, Ray in particular, like, um, well, I, either one of them are pretty movable to either the minors or elsewhere. But, you know, they're good until the end of the season. And then you have to, I think, be real about things. Yeah, so Ray has the option and Taron doesn't. So that makes him easier to send down. So that would be one thing they could do. Uh, I think Taron is the guy that you kind of just keep rolling out there. Um, And Hauser would be more the guy that they already kind of did it. They they toyed around with it, and then he had to come back in because Miley got hurt. Uh, But Hauser potentially pitching out of the bullpen some and being a guy that could go, you know, especially like – take the last four innings of a loss and just save the rest of the bullpen and, and keep everything okay and then be able to, you know, sit there for a few days and whatever. I, I think that it, they'll work this out. It's This is the definition of a good problem to have, so um, they'll sort it out. But, yeah, I, obviously, um, I think Woodruff and Miley go back into the rotation because they've just, you know, they have the pedigree to say they should. So Yeah. But that's it. like the main thing is just like don't know what you got here and, and don't overplay it. And that's that's really it. You know, as soon as it goes south, cut bait. Um, as soon as you get to a situation where you're playing elite offenses repeatedly, cut bait. Um, you know, use them for what they are, but don't overdo things. Yeah, and also depending on what the standings look like, you you can bounce around. You know, if you have room versus not having room, uh, that is also going to depend. Yep. Yeah, and make some decisions for you. Made Wiley has our next question here asking, who is more back, Yelich or Burns? Uh, both of them. Uh, red hot in July, Corbin, uh, looking a lot more Corbin-y, you know, with the strikeouts <laughs> starting to come back. And Yelly, uh, everybody's favorite 
uh, random starting point, June 6th, I guess, uh, is like <laughs> when we're starting to track when Yelly has been back. Uh, and I, you know, I saw quite a few people asking, like, why are all these graphics showing like since June 6th, showing him as like the third highest OPS behind Otani and other people? Uh, it, it's because that was a three hit game that broke like a 0 for 8 <laughs> streak. So, yes. uh, yeah, that's why it's because he had a multi hit game and selective endpoints are fun. No, it's because it's D Day. Like, it's D Day. It's June 6th. Like, that's why. Yes. That's why. We've, the good patriot it's, it's, that. Christian Yelich is with the patriotic jersey. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I do appreciate Paul, all of you who who tweet um, counted or didn't count at me. Yes. Every, every, every time he pulls time. it or doesn't. It, uh, keep doing it. Love it. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So who's more back, Paul? Is it Yelly or Burns? Um, I think it's Yelly because we actually have some sample size to Yelly. Um, sure. He's been good for... Well, since June 6th, <laughs> as previously discussed, um, I, I mean, Burns looks like he's he's gotten some things right. I, I won't be surprised if he goes on a tear for the rest of the season. Absolutely. Um, but it would be nice to see, you know, a couple, couple, three more games out of Burns being old Burns before we declare him back um, with any, you know, concrete nature. So it's Yelich for now, but Burns looks like he's actually tearing it up. So I'm, I'm pretty confident in him, too. Yeah, the thing I'm going to go with Burns here, and because we want to embrace debate on this podcast, that's what of we're course. all about here. But also just because, like, I thought of it this way: Burns right now, uh, over his last these four starts that we were just talking about, um, has a uh, where's the strikeout to walk ratio? Uh, Twenty seven innings, thirty six walks, or sorry, three. That would be bad. Uh, thirty six strikeouts and nine walks. Um, walks are a little bit on the high side, but the 36 strikeouts, that was the thing that was missing earlier this year was he wasn't missing bats. 36 strikeouts in 27 innings pitched. That's more classic uh, burns. That's like burns at his best. Like the best version of burns that we've ever seen is him just absolutely mowing hitters down and missing bats at just a, an, an insane rate. Yelich at his best was hitting for more power than this, right? This is like Yelich basically yeah. when we got him sort of like he is now hitting sort of a, a very good version of what he was on the Marlins is what he's doing this year. But he's not hitting for the power that we saw in 2018-19. And I don't expect him to. I don't think he needs to to be a, a productive member of this team. I think I am happily taking what he's doing this year. Um, no problem. But Burns right now is closer to the classic best version of Burns that we've seen than Yelich is to the classic best version of Yelich that we've seen. So I'll go with Burns. Okay, that's fair. I will say uh, our weekly launch angle uh, check of Christian Yelich, he's up to 4.8. 4.8. He's been trending up a little bit. He was down to like 4.4. So yeah, um, he's, he's building back up. It would be nice to see him get back to like 6 where he was early in the season. But uh, at least it's on the, w the right way. And at least he's still you know, crushing the ever-loving crap out of the ball every time he makes contact. Yeah, and, and strikeout rate also way down. Way down. Uh, Very nice yeah, to see. Yeah, 21.2% this yep. year. Which is... I actually, so I looked at, I took a look at his splits this week just to see if he was actually pulling the ball more, and he's not actually pulling the ball more. He's pulling the ball ever so slightly less than he generally does. Um, but he's hitting the ball to center way, way, way less than he usually does. Um, and is it hitting the ball to the opposite field more? That's actually where he's picked up. Um, but I think he's actually seeing the ball better because my yellowish thing is he's kind of like two hitters. And if he gets a ball on the outer half, he knows to extend his arms and drive the ball the other way. 
And good Yelich also is able to pull the arms in on inside pitches and pull them hard down the line. And I think for the last few years, part of it's been his bat's been a little slow, but part of it's been he hasn't been recognizing that as much. And that's when you get those weak grounders up the middle. That's when you, That happens when you try to pull outside pitches. That's what causes weak crap up the middle. That's kind of disappeared. He's like not doing that at all. It's, it's either crush it to left or crush it to right. So that's what you want to see out of the guy. Agreed. All right. Uh, next question this week comes from Elvis Piguero Enthusiast asking, with Burns returning to form, the bullpen being lights out and a weak offense, this team is giving me 2021 deja vu. We saw that adding only a middle mid-level bat in Escobar didn't translate to postseason success. I liked Ryan's optimism on Goldschmidt, but what about a big-name true rental with first-base experience, Cody Bellinger? Thoughts on Cody and other big-name players Matt Arnold should make a push for? Uh, I would I would love Bellinger, but like hell if the Cubs are going to give him to the Brewers, yeah, right? No. Yeah, <laughs> that that will not happen. Well, I, I shouldn't say never because they're weird, um, but it seems very, very unlikely that that would happen. I, I just think it's going to be pretty difficult to find an, any kind of game changing bat um, that doesn't cost you an absurd amount. That That's the problem. I think you guys talked a little bit about this last week, so. <laughs> um, the, the mathematics on that hasn't changed that much. You'd have to get a lot back to be willing to actually do it or a dumb front office where you get to keep Churio. Um, and I know Miz, I think it, Ryan kind of floated. Eh, I'd, I'd do some 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 certain guys for Mizrowski, but uh, like Bellinger's probably not out there. I You talked about the Cardinals last week. I don't think he'll get Cardinals out of this. Eh, maybe, but um, and that's some of the best places to go shopping, honestly. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure that there's going to be too much available for him. And, and Shoei Otani is fun to think about, but that's it's a long shot. Well, to sort of run down the list here, first off, 2021, they added only a mid-level bat in Escobar. That's only if you don't count what they did the previous two months, which is adding Adamas, adding Telez, adding Dan Vogelbach. They had been looking to upgrade all throughout May and June of that year as well, which they did. Which is why when they got to the deadline, they'd sort of already made a bunch of the changes that they needed to make. And so Escobar was still like the kind of the only missing piece that they still needed to add to that puzzle. It just turned out everybody got hurt in September and they weren't able to carry the hitting into the postseason. And they exited quickly to the world champs, which, you know, that's going to happen sometimes. Yep. Um, my optimism about Goldschmidt, uh, I... I think they came off a little bit more optimistic than I wanted it to because I <laughs> it maybe it maybe did <laughs> just as someone who was listening and not on the podcast it was like oh, I don't know about that yeah I don't didn't really <laughs> think they dream. were going yeah. to it was a pipe dream and it's the kind of thing that like um, and also we already knew at that point I I didn't mention it but I it, it had already come up that they weren't moving Goldschmidt they they are saying they're not going to move Goldschmidt which is dumb and actually gives me hope that the Cardinals are going to screw up this little rebuild thing that they're doing here, that they're not going to go as deep as they need to go because they feel like they can't because they're the Cardinals. So anyways, the the Goldschmidt thing came off as more optimistic than I really thought. That was that was definitely a pipe dream category sort of thing. Um, Bellinger would be fine. What you guys said about it, I don't think that they're going to uh, that the, the Cubs would trade him in the division. I think they still have kind of designs on keeping their toe in the water because, frankly, I think Jed and David Ross especially um, need to keep their toe in the water because uh, the Ricketts are going to start looking to scapegoat some people pretty quick here, I think. So 
I think heads are going to begin to roll on the north side if they end up having the disappointing season that they are kind of on pace for at the moment. Um, so the other name that I want to bring up here is one that I have mentioned a few times on Twitter this week and has come up and people are, are talking about him. That's Teoscar Hernandez on the, uh, the Mariners Mariners. Yeah. And he kind of fits perfectly in a lot of ways because he's not going to command a huge return. Um, I don't think you would need to give up one of the top six guys because Gosser has kind of now worked his way into the back of some top 100s. So I think you could talk about it as a top six instead of a top five. So I think that you could do this without giving up one of those top six guys and he could just fit in nicely um, to the DH position. You could play him in right. Um, There's a lot of different things you can do with him. I don't think he'd go to first base, but I don't think that's necessarily that big of a deal because Rowdy's going to be coming back hopefully relatively soon anyway, and they probably could do something else there to to cover as well. So um, the the Teoscar Hernandez thing is definitely, I, and maybe it's just the fact that while I was working out, I saw him hit a home run, and I'm like, ooh, that is, that is big power that he has, and that's really the thing this team is missing is that big power stick to kind of put in the middle. And I compared it to what the Mets did in 2015. You remember when they picked up Jonas Suspedes? Um, They had the pitching, and nothing else was kind of, the offense was kind of not clicking. They brought in Suspedes, and it was like he was the exact missing thing that that lineup needed to sort of start functioning. They had the power bat in the middle that everything could kind of revolve around. And so those are the, the like, crazy cockeyed fantasies that I'm having about uh, about Teoscar Hernandez coming yeah. in and being a solution. So problem, that's problem a with guy. the ale is, problem with the ale is nobody's out of it. Um, <laughs> it, it uh, Mariners, I think, just three and a half back of the wild card right now. So, you yeah, know, there's only there's only a week here, um, and maybe teams start to sell when they're you know kind of on the the verge of the wild card because it's not what it used to be. But mm-hmm. they're they're not out of it. They're just hanging around. No, so. but there's also are there some teams in between them and the last spot? Is- just a ton, just a huge. Everybody's right. Yeah, like, there's and a, there's a the time to counter build too. There's six you know, teams yeah. within four mm-hmm. and a half games of the last well, like it's just a big, huge mess. I, mean, I guess within two and a half of the last. So, next question uh, is from Cyber Cleric this week, asking with how this bullpen has shaped up, looking like Mejia is probably the low man on the pole, and probably I see being replaced by Justin Wilson, who's been pitching great in his six rehab outings. Do you think that the front office doesn't add to the pen and just focuses resources on a bat? What about a Justin Turner for third base and a Jimer Candelario for first baseman trade? Uh, once Roddy comes back, eventually, maybe he's a bat off the bench with some rotation between first base DH if they cut Winker. So a uh, couple different thoughts here. Justin Wilson does look good. Probably just a matter of time before he's there. But uh, how about some of those quarter bats, Paul? So um, to, to take the second half, uh, don't don't trade for Candelario because he's 29 and hasn't he has a good season every once in a while, but I don't trust him to be good regularly. Um, and and uh, whatever, like if you give up nothing for him, totally fine. Um, but not a not a guy I, I like a lot. Um, like Justin Turner, okay, I would I would do that, but. The other thing is this: like it depends on it depends on what what you have to give up to get them, because the Brewers can certainly improve their offense um, with rando average guys. So um, they're not people I like in a vacuum. Well, Justin Turner, I like fine. I would I would take him. I've I've wanted him before. Um, but like 
if you can get them for that not much in terms of prospects, yes, you should do that because you don't have good offense on the team and you could use a few more bats even if they're just plugging in or whatever. But like, if you have to give up anything significant, then no, then don't do that because those are just old people in rentals. So, uh, But fine. Yeah, the problem with Candelar is exactly what Paul said, which is he's having a great year, which on paper yeah. that's like, oh, good. You want to get that guy. But chances are good. He's not going to be as good as he was in the first half after you trade for him, because that's how baseball tends to work. Uh, yeah, so, I don't like buying high on 29 year olds like that's yeah. my main thing. Yep. So he's probably going to command more than you would like to pay. Turner. Yeah, fine. But again, this is a question of is Boston actually selling because there's like five games over 500 or last I looked, they were like five games over 500. And I don't know if they are actually going to sell, even if they're in last place in the division, because they're still over 500 and they still have a legitimate chance if they can get hot. And again, you have a front office on the hot seat there. Like Heimblum is getting the, uh, the, the locals are out for blood with him for sure. So, (laughs) That one is a is a tough situation. So I don't know that he's going to be traded. Um, the the other thing to remember about the bullpen, um, everybody wants to like fill up the bullpen with surefire guys, and you can't do that. You have to have guys that can rotate up and down because you have to be able to cover innings when you get into situations where you have to cover innings. So you can't have ever. There's like this vision of like I want eight guys in the bullpen who are all good. Well, okay, but then who are you sending down? And if you get a guy like Justin Wilson when he comes back, I'm going to go out on a limb and say he doesn't have options left. I'm pretty sure he's 35. I don't think he's going to be optioned down. So when he comes back, he takes a roster spot, which is why that might wait until rosters expand in September for him to come up, because once he's on the roster, you can't fool around with him. And the way that this works in the modern game, you need to be able to move guys up and down to cover innings. You just do. If you have short starts, if you have uh, games that go long, if you kind of burn through your best end of the bullpen quite a bit the way we've seen the Brewers do, you're going to need to keep that flexibility. So I I admire everybody wanting to construct the perfect bullpen, like eight-man bullpen, but you're going to have to rotate them through, and so you have to maintain flexibility there. I'm telling you right now, Abner Uribe is going to get optioned down at some point, even though he pro- he's not going to deserve it. It's not going to be because he's been bad. Maybe he has a rough outing, and that gives him an excuse to do it. But um, it, it's more like they're going to need to cover innings at some point, and that's why you do the shuffle of the bullpen the way they do. So keep that in mind. All right. My only lemonade asking uh, this week. Since June 1st, Victor Caratini's WRC Plus is 118. Since June 1st, Owen Miller's WRC Plus is 47. So I was excited to see Caratini get the start at first base the other night. If he continues to look playable, wouldn't it make sense to finally bench Owen Miller on days when Contreras is catching, Paul? Bench, cuts, whatever. Um, This is actually a little misleading. Owen Miller's actually been on a tear. His average exit velocity is up 700% since April. Um, (laughs) So we should consider that as well. Um, But yeah, Owen Miller's just... When you do stuff like this, it's answering a question, oh my God, who can play first base? That's what this is. Because Victor Caratini, done a nice job, done fine, good defensive catcher. You don't want to be playing Victor Caratini at first base. It's just... He, your backup catcher's hitting better than your first baseman person infield utility guy is. 
that's bad. Yeah. So Owen Miller's, I think, days are kind of numbered. He just keeps kind of surviving because they don't have anybody else to take his spot. Uh, but as soon as they do, he's gone. He's out. He's not He's not good. Yes, he's fine. He's versatile. Can't hit a lick. Uh, his average actual loss is 7% in baseball, by the way. That's that's not good for your first base person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the thing here is that and when you say out, it's not necessarily off the roster, but to a bench role where he's not playing nearly as much, right? Yeah, I think he's probably in danger of being off the roster, though. He's one of the yeah. last few guys. If he wasn't from Wisconsin, he might be already off the roster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and managers seem to love to pencil him in the lineup. Like, smart managers seem to love... Terry Francona and Craig Kelts are two of the very best... I would venture to say maybe the best managers in baseball right now. And they're the ones who have inexplicably been playing Owen Miller at first base a bunch the last two years to the consternation of fans. So something weird is going on with this. Like, I... He he must just be like the world's greatest clubhouse guy. It's the yep. only thing I can I can imagine here. But um, yeah, fine. C- Caratini can play some first base. I floated. I don't know if you guys saw this the other day. Tyler Black, <laughs> uh, who hasn't sure. played, I did hasn't played any first base that I could see really. But you know, this is the classic Ron Washington. So tell him Wash. It's not that hard. Um, and also, <laughs> like he's six foot one. So he's like the appropriate sized human being to play first base and like reasonably athletic. So you would think he could, you know, move around and at least even if he's not going to have like the reps of picking baseballs uh, and he's going to let some stuff get by that way, um, he's at least going to make some plays around the bag athletically. So um, but no, I mean, Tyler Black, I'm, when I brought that up, I really meant more for going forward as a potential like Lyle Overbay type at first base. Um just because I can't see him playing second base long term because the Brewers want really good defenders and he's not a really good defender at second base. So anyways, um, yeah, there's a lot of things here that can happen. But the biggest thing this team needs to get going is like the the best version of the Milwaukee Brewers over the last six weeks of this team has Rowdy Tellez hitting dingers at the first base spot. That's the best likely scenario here is for them to get Rowdy Tellez hitting dingers. Will he be healthy? Will he be able to do that? Is he going to break out of his slump? I don't know. But like in terms of what you have as a potential um, to get a a result, that's about as high end as it's going to get for you. And Rowdy has been down this year, but has a track record to suggest he's better than this. So, yeah, I, I, I think that that's the real solution. But who knows if it's actually going to come to fruition. All right. Mark Podscarby, another Owen Millen question here asking, uh, defensive metrics seem to shed a positive light on Owen Miller at first base, but it seems like he makes mistakes over there all the time. So what gives? Uh, oh, I got dibs on this one. Okay, so, go for it. For, you, you, should, you should ignore the hell out of that for starters for, for several reasons. First of all, Owen Miller is going to have great range for a first baseman mm-hmm. and no one gives a crap that he has great range for a first baseman now uh, the first baseman's primary job is to, to catch the ball over there and when the ball is hit in his general direction do the correct thing that's either go to the bag to catch it or go to the ball to then flip it to the pitcher and it's those those little fundamentals of the first base where he struggled but he's going to look better than he should because he's going to get to stuff that you know rowdy doesn't get to because he weighs twice as you know because oh no it was half as much as rowdy so you can ignore it it's a small sample size defensive metric what you saw is correct especially from a wpa perspective and yeah just 
if you put a shortstop at first base, he's going to have good metrics over there. Same principle applies. Ignore the hell out of it. Giddy up. Let's keep going. All right, Nick Prill asking, uh, let's make the reasonable and not at all wishful assumption that the Brewers will trade for Zach Greinke in the next 10 days. When this happens, is Greinke, a 714 career OPS against left-handed pitcher, going to be used as a starting pitcher, a platoon DH, or a two-way player on the current <laughs> Brewers roster? I love this question, Ryan. Oh, um, yeah, it is it is truly amusing. Uh, Zach Greinke would cur- of the guys they currently have on the roster might be their seventh starter because I think you might put Gosser in ahead of him at this point. Uh, they just haven't had a reason to do that, and that's without yeah, considering might be dumb. without considering Woodruff and um, Wade Miley, and potentially Aaron Ashby, who we haven't even brought up tonight, but and he's going to be pitching out of the bullpen. But there's another guy potentially pitching out of the bullpen for them. So yeah, uh, this is one of those that's yeah. It would be fun, um, but I Grinky is pretty well washed pitching wise. He's very very limited. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, he just doesn't have much left in the way of stuff, and he knows it, and that's why he's with the Royals. Because right. you know why the hell not? <laughs> he's a smart. I think player. the Royals. Yeah, the Royals need to let him be a two way player to end the year. They got nothing else to play for. Let Zach live out his dream. Let's yeah, why go. the hell not? Exactly. All right, you're either a smart fella or a fart smella asking, are you guys ready to get mad when the Brewers don't trade Churio and half the rest of the farm for two months of Shohei Otani? Ryan's frantically pointing to try to take this question. Okay, so yes, I and you mentioned it earlier, the whole Mizorowski thing. There is a universe where it can make sense to trade for, um, for even two months of Shohei Otani. First off, if you haven't listened to the Effectively Wild episode from the end of last week where they literally talked to like 20 different people and had them role play as GMs and they kind of went through all the stuff, just listen to that and you'll get kind of a feeling because um, I'm not going to give away the ending, but it it all gets shut down uh, unceremoniously in the end anyway. So um, the most likely thing here is that the Brewers aren't going to trade their major pieces for the future because they like them. And they think that they can be the next core going forward and that this team is going to, you know, continue to be good in the foreseeable future. And that's a good thing. I, I, I think people like have gotten to the point where they mock that and they like scorn it. The Mike's idea of, at the able, baby. Who cares yeah. about the future? No, the future matters because it's going to come. Hopefully, I mean, you know. I haven't seen Oppenheimer yet, so maybe I would feel less certain about that. But I'm pretty sure that the future is going to come. So, like, the fact that they are trying to build up this thing to to take us from one generation to the next and stay competitive through it is good. And so they don't want to undermine that. That doesn't mean you can't potentially make some moves and do some things, especially if your internal reports on a guy say – hey, this guy isn't as good as maybe we don't think internally he's as good as what we could get for him on the open market. That's a good situation to sell. But that's also impossible for us to know from the outside that that is the case because we're not internally looking at these guys and don't know everything about them the way that the team does. So it's really hard to kibitz that from the outside. So basically, yeah, like, expecting them to give up a huge haul of prospects a big chunk of their future to rent Shohei Otani for two months would be stupid 
Yeah. Um, it's just not good baseball. It's just not good management. It doesn't really make sense, especially when you're chasing with a team that nobody seems to think is all that good. That's the the thing that really got me hot about this. And this is in response to something I said earlier in the week. And it was like, the thing that really drives me nuts about it is it's the same people that say the team is utter dog shit that are the same ones saying, why aren't you giving up the entire future to chase the World Series with this roster that they think is dog shit? Um, that part of it is what really gets me hot under the collar is like, we don't need that. That's not that's that's not a productive uh, path to go here. This team is obviously flawed. We all know that it's flawed. Um, it doesn't mean that it can't potentially get hot. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't push some chips into winning this year with this roster. That is potentially a good thing to do. But you have to do it carefully. And I like the word that Matt Arnold uses all the time about this is being responsible. Not throwing everything, not throwing caution to the wind, not throwing all the chips on red and hoping that it, you know, rolls red. Like, that's that's not what you want to do here. Yep. Rant over. If you can get them for crap because the angels are dumb, do that. If you have to give up Cheerio, don't do that. Easy peasy. And weird things have happened than uh, a team like this year's Brewers making it to the World Series because the Phillies stunk last year and made it to the World Series. So there you go. Uh, speaking of the Phillies, Jordan B is asking, why is Bryce Harper so afraid of Hobie Milner? <laughs> and how long until the whole league learns to fear him in the same manner? <laughs> I, I saw the highlight of this. Was there ever any explanation for it? No, that came out? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. It was bizarre. It's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen, honestly. Um, okay, we have, we have no answer at all. It has to have something to do with Harper's injuries, right? Like, it has to have something to do with that. They they didn't want him, or he didn't want to. It's so, it's inexplicable. It's so weird. Uh, for those that didn't see this, um, it's not hard to find. Go go look up Bryce Harper, Homie Milner, and you'll see video of it. Bryce Harper took a completely non-competitive at bat. He basically bet that Hobie was going to throw four balls before he threw three strikes, and he wasn't going to swing, basically, no matter what. And but once Hobie it, caught on to that, he just started. It. <laughs> yeah, he didn't. Yeah, he didn't even bother to hide it. That it was, was the, like a pitcher in spring training batting stance. It was right? like it when was John Crook was yeah. batting against Randy Johnson, the All-Star yes. wore his hat backwards. It was. <laughs> it had. It had John Crook against Randy Johnson vibes all over it. It was so weird. And I saw people like talking about how it, like Bryce Harper's lazy, but there's there's this weird Bryce Harper hatred that's persisted since because he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated when he was 16 and all that. But um, no, I assure you, it's not his being lazy. Something really strange happened there, and I don't quite know what it was, but it it had to have something to do with the injuries. Like it had to. I I just couldn't imagine what. Um. All right. Moving on. Uh. Running long, but uh, here's another question that I'll lead to a Ryan Rant. Brew Crew fan in California is asking, <laughs> I got this in a little late last week, but is it time Brewers fans get over it and recognize this team isn't in first place without the hater trade? I saw Ken Rosenthal wrote a piece on it this week, so maybe a good spot for discussion evaluation one year later. Thank you. Uh, this was interesting because Ken Rosenthal's piece was basically – See, the Brewers uh, did the right thing. Hater was bad for them, and 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 they got all the pieces that get got William Contreras. And then ESPN turned around and wrote the exact opposite story. Mm -hmm. So 
I, I guess, Paul, let's relitigate this, shall we? <laughs> so, the, 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 first of all, there is no way to be concretely correct or incorrect about this because it all depends on how you view sliding doors scenarios and how far you're willing to go in terms of um, cause and effects on on things you know temporally not that related. The hater trade itself resulted in a lot of players coming over that didn't play well or were cut immediately, and they missed the playoffs by a game. It's not great, um, but they ended up getting a bunch. Well, at least two really good players, maybe three, in the grand scheme of things, out of it. But uh, it all comes down to how how much you view the connection there, because even if you don't do the hater trade, you might still be able to pull that off, or something like it, or something similar. Um, and trades don't happen in a vacuum and also trades do happen in a vacuum so um it 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 just really is um how you this is just for feels it's how you want to spin it i personally think that you should grade the trade um at the time it happens um not ex post facto too much um and not go more than a transaction or two in the future because first of all they weren't contemplating extra moves probably uh, after they made that, they made the moves to get depth, so that's just complaining a little bit. But then also to make the playoffs and do good things, and because they couldn't afford Hater in the future, um, so I don't think you should connect them that much. But again, there's no right or wrong answer here. If it makes you feel better, then then great, and it's good that they got good players out of the whole thing. That's that's a good thing. Um, but I still think the trade was not great at the time, feels wise, vibes wise, locker room wise, Daniel Lemay not being on the team wise, and um, all the the one game. Um, cost of not making the playoffs wise. Well, I mean, when we, I went back and listened to that episode not long ago because I wanted to hear what we said about it at the time, at the, like when it happened, like the day, because I think we podcasted that night after the trade had happened. So it was still did. like there hadn't, we didn't even know that the players were going to be like weird about it at that point. We had no idea. We had none of that information yet at that point. And we were all pretty much like, well, uh, we first off have been talking about the fact Hader was going to be traded for a very long time because he's a one inning reliever and those have limited value. And so starting at that point, we had all just been expecting that he was going to get traded, not necessarily in that moment. It came as a surprise in the moment, but we'd been expecting it for so long that it was kind of not like shocking because we'd sort of had prepared ourselves for it to come eventually, no matter what anyway. So there was that. Um, there was also the fact that he was bad at the time of the trade and we continued to be bad for a month after the trade too yeah i mean we definitely speculated there were some injuries there and release point to change so that all Mm -hmm. was true too yeah there was an article that came out the day after the trade uh that i think caught them by surprise too about how josh Hader's release point had dropped and that he wasn't as effective as he had been and it wasn't a sure thing like how he was going to get it back they didn't it wasn't really known and it took a while um for him to get it back. And he seems to be having a very good year this year. So he, he seems to have gotten himself back on track. But that wasn't something they knew in the moment either. They didn't know how solvable this was going to be, how much of a, of a problem it was going to be going forward. And they also, it's also important to remember, we talked about it at the time, Dan Samborski had them with the exact same playoff, or sorry, the exact same World Series odds post-trade deadline as pre-trade deadline. They were 2.5 before, 2.5 after. They basically didn't change their odds. They uh, took on a guy in Taylor Rogers who was having also a down year, um, compared, like, had started to have a down year in the summertime, just like Hader had. And 
you know, it it basically was kind of a wash in terms of the overall uh, probability. But this was a case where Josh Hader meant a lot to especially the fans. Um, I think that it probably gets blown out of proportion how much he meant to the guys in the clubhouse. I know there's certain exceptions to that like Corbin Burns is a close friend of his. So it probably meant more to him personally. But I think the team, it was more they just didn't understand why the team was doing what they were doing. And it put them in like a weird position. And then the timing of what happened afterwards was perfectly awful. They had some bullpen struggles at exactly the wrong moment to have bullpen struggles like this. Also, the Cardinals got ungodly hot. What did they win? Like 24 of like 31 or something? Sure, but that's something that you should predict, not something that you should be surprised by. Well, no, but but the fact is, is that the Cardinals getting that insanely hot and like this all of a sudden getting like falling out of uh, or falling out of the lead of the division wasn't something they were really going to be able to control unless they themselves also got really hot and that team wasn't really good enough to get really hot because the pitching just wasn't that good last year like the the Brewers pitching in 2022 was not that good it it very much underperformed it was the reason they didn't make the playoffs ultimately um and that has much to do with the starters as the bullpen yeah when you're examining this trade, uh, there is a famous critique of utilitarianism. I can't remember which philosopher did it, uh, but utilitarianism, of course, is the philosophy that just says that you should do the thing that um, makes the universe better compared to what it otherwise would be. It's a very simple philosophy about uh, morality reflecting uh, the immediate good that you inject into the world. And that critique is essentially um, at what time frame? Like, is it good for the next 15 minutes or the next hour mm-hmm. or in a year? Like, if you give a bunch of people exactly what they want, will they be better or worse people a year from now? And if you can't actually know th- with any concrete certainty the results of your decision, how can you actually practice utilitarianism in the first place? Um, so uh, this trade's kind of like that. And it just depends on where you decide to make your arbitrary cutoffs in terms of projecting the future. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like you can make a case in Packerdom that drafting Tony Mandridge was actually much better than drafting all of the Hall of Famers who were, who were drafted immediately after Tony Mandridge because it ended up working out for the Packers. I don't think it's a good way to do things. Like, I mean, Tony Mandridge is defensible in a lot of ways, but like, um, it's still worse given the immediacy of that than, no, but but still a good point. Like the Packers are the Packers because they ended up with Favre, and if they have better players, they might not. So yeah, there's no way to tell. The world is difficult. And yeah, this is really one of those situations where it, it really does come down to the feelings and emotion of the situation because you can't really quantify some of this stuff. Did Josh Hader being off that team mean they didn't make the playoffs? Nobody can actually say that. Uh, there are people that feel it very, very strongly, but I think probably yes, personally, but there's no way to say for sure. Well, but it's also part of that is that it's a very fine margin. And like, was that the, was that the likely outcome of making that trade? When you make that decision, you don't have perfect information about what the universe is going to do behind you. Um, You didn't necessarily know that it was going to come down to being that close when you did it for for making the playoffs or not making the playoffs it's it's impossible to know that basically what happened here was they they did i've said this before they tried to get a little bit too cute they tried to do something good for the future while not undermining the present and on paper it worked out a lot better than like what it actually played out in practice Uh and so like there's there is that element of it but 
the real long-term payoff of it is not going to be necessarily on paper. It's going to be concrete. So, but we still don't know what that is. And you, how far you want to take it down the sliding doors thing with them trading Ruiz, that is also a hard thing to do because who knows if they were able to get William Contreras and Joel Pyamps without having Ruiz on the roster. It, it's it's impossible to know that. Or would the, the uh, Padres have just been looped into that thing for some reason? Who knows what would have happened? It's a very, very difficult thing to do. I think the biggest thing that I have problems with is anybody who claims to have certainty about it. That it is it is a mess, and sure. it is going to remain a mess for a long time, I think. The only thing I'm certain of is I'm tired of talking about it. So let's yeah. move on. <laughs> <laughs> a couple more questions this week. Morgoth10 asking, total novice question when it comes to signing draft picks. How does any team sign a pick for under slot value? If the value is there and available for anyone to see, at least it seems publicly available, why would any pick not sign for that amount? Guessing incentives or other details, but I'm a bit stymied searching for an explanation. Feel free to lambast me if I'm missing something obvious. And then my only lemonade, a follow-up question. Also, how do teams negotiate this with players? Are there conversations happening prior to the draft? So Ryan, real quick, Mm -hmm. how does that all work? Yeah, my only lemonade, you're 100% correct about this. How this works is teams are talking to players before the draft, and they're finding out from their agent what they're going to sign for. Um, there's rules about that that kind of sort of prohibit it, but everybody does it, and so it's all winked and nodded away. Um, and so they're talking to the players ahead of time, finding out what is your number to sign. Um, especially with high school kids, this is really important because if you take a high school kid and then offer him slot and he wants – uh, a bunch more than slot, that's going to be a problem for you. So moving back to Morgoth's question, it is really, it's it's not as hard as it seems here. Basically what it is, is um, when a player uh, will use, I'm going to use in this case, um, the, uh, the Brewers first round draft pick, Brock Wilkin, who they took at 18. Okay. Why were they able to get him for, I think what amounted to like the slot of like pick 24, is what they got him for. That's what he ended up signing for was like uh, the slot of, of like four, five, six picks later is where he signed. I don't have the exact number, but it's about that. Okay, so why did that happen? That happened because when the Brewers went to Brock Wilkins' agent and said, hey, if we offer you this amount of money, uh, will you take it? And Brock Wilkins' agent, whose job it is to get Brock Wilkin the most money possible, uh, looked around and said, well, they didn't have nibbles from other teams until they started getting probably back to the late 20s. And so he's looking at it and saying, yeah, those teams, they're going to have to go over slot to beat what the Brewers are offering here. So it's in our best interest to say, yeah, we'll take less than slot here because it's more than we think we're going to get from any other team. It's really what it comes down to. The The agent is doing their best to try to get the player as much money as possible. And based on the rumors that are circulating, what's going on, the Brewers probably had some idea that the teams right after them weren't necessarily interested in Wilkin. Because if one of them had been and they were willing to pay him their slot, if the next team down the line had been willing to pay him slot, Brock Wilkin wouldn't have signed for that amount of money. He just he would have said, no, I, I have more money coming from another team. So this is what I'm, I'm doing. So that in a nutshell is is how it works. It's the player's agent is trying to get the most money possible for the player. And um, they're looking around at what other teams are going to offer them if they go in, if, if that team takes them. And so 
if a, a guy isn't going to go for a little while after that pick for whatever reason, then you can get a discount on them. And that's what the Brewers did over and over and over. They actually did it at um, 18. They did it at 33 with uh, with Knoth and they did it with um, with Bove at uh, at 54 as well. They got all those guys for under slot. And that's why they were able to go out and sign Cooper Pratt and um, Eric Batanti in the third and sixth rounds. Pretty simple. All right, Mount Doom 98, last Patreon question this week is asking, I don't have anything that hasn't been asked. Uh, makes sense. We've been doing this for about 90 minutes now. Uh, so <laughs> who's the most underrated brewer from 2000 to 2005, Paul? Um, it's either Jose Hernandez, um, who had one really good year, one okay year, one mad year, and but was a pretty good player, like a six-war player for the Brewers in that time period, which is pretty good. Uh, or Brady Clark, who they're sort of unheralded center fielder. Ah, I love Brady Clark. Um, mm-hmm. Who, who yeah. over the course of playing for the Brewers, had a four and a half war season and a two two war season, um, and maybe was a little stretched as a center fielder, but was a great on base guy and a pretty good weapon. And nobody ever thought was anything at all worth talking about. So those are your two kind of underrated high war guys from the period. Everybody else, I feel like, kind of got their due, um, but. Uh, I think I'd go with Brady Clark. Uh, Jose Hernandez, I think, is underrated because the strikeout thing was such a big deal at the time. Mm-hmm. I was going to take that one, Paul. Yeah, you, Brady Clark just doesn't get talked about at all. Jose, <laughs> you could take Jose more if you want. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the Brady Clark thing, 100% echo it, but that was more like 2006-ish, and that was because uh, he came he on He played the... 2003, 2004, 2005 for the team, so three, oh, three of the five years, yeah. Okay, I remember it being people were mad because they traded away Scott Pitsednik, but they got Carlos Lee out of that. And so people were like, you need a center fielder who's stealing bases and leading off. And no, all Brady Clark did was just get on base a lot because he took a ton of walks. And I had just read Moneyball at this point. You probably had just read Moneyball at this point, too. And we were like, oh, yeah, Brady Clark. This is a guy that we want to have in the leadoff spot, even though he's maybe not the traditional leadoff yeah, hitter for, because he wasn't fast for the brewers his slash line was 293 66 412 as a center fielder which is frankly outstanding that's really good um mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah big big fan like brady clark um yeah no the jose hernandez thing though perfect shout because he was a very good defender um and he struck out a ton and people hated that and he like especially because he was like on a strikeout record they had to like sit him so he didn't set the record right he didn't so they right. didn't break the record. They had to do that. Um, yeah. Or they wanted to do that, I guess. Um, and But other than that, I mean, in his time with the Brewers, 2000 to 2002, he had 261, 324, 434, 96 OPS plus. People thought he was like people. He was a running joke. People thought he was one of the worst players that they had ever seen. They hated, hated, hated his guts. Part of that was the team was utter trash at that point. So that like he took a lot of stick for that because of the strikeouts. But he was a perfectly cromulent big league player and yep. earned every penny of that contract that he got from the Brewers. It just, you know, it, it was wrong place, wrong time sort of situation. I got another one that might kind of bridge the gap between the 2000, 2005 and the next era. But Doug Davis got a lot yeah. of crap, yeah, uh, but he is a perfectly acceptable starter. So in his five years with the Brewers, uh, ended up with an ERA plus of 106 because uh Got kind of ugly towards the end there, but he had a 200 strikeout season in the middle of there. It was just horrible watching him pitch, though, and I think that's why everybody hated it because he was so slow. <laughs> so slow. Yeah, 
but uh man in in a in a in those years 2005 or so you needed guys like him and chris capuana to actually Mm -hmm. pitch decently well and they did so those are always favorites of mine as well yep all right uh thank you everybody for all of the questions this week i think we got like 20 which again uh is a crazy amount for us to try to get through so as a reminder if you want a question answered patreon's the best way to do it go to patreon.com slash mke tailgate two bucks a month uh thrown our way gets you question priority here every week even if you're not a patron you can always support us in another way go to apple Podcasts, spotify wherever else you listen to us leave a five-star review hit the follow button uh, and, you know, just tell your friends about us, you know, share the, the episodes around, especially as we get closer to the trade deadline. We're going to have a ton to talk about, I'm sure, it, it, next week. So uh, we we might take some time to kind of see how the trade deadline settles down. But uh, rest assured, we'll be here to talk about everything that the Brewers do or maybe don't do, because as we've said, uh, they won't do a whole lot. Yeah. Ryan, do we have any new patrons this week? Yes, we do. Um, and we already mentioned them. So, yeah, Elvis Peguero Enthusiast, thank you for joining up. Uh, we appreciate that very much. Love the name also. Lord. Exactly. All right. So uh, you also get that shout out, too, at patreon.com slash tailgate. So thanks again, everybody. That'll do it for this week. And we will be back next time to recap that trade deadline, both the uh, Brewers and rest of NL Central. And hopefully it's a good one for the Brewers. See you then. Have a good one, everybody. Hey.